Hey friends, have you noticed that no matter how much yoga we do, we may still struggle in our intimate relationships? My husband and I have a great relationship, but we are not relationship coaches. And we know that yoga can and does help, but at a certain point, you need more relational support from a relationship specialist. If you're going through some kind of challenge right now in your relationships, my friend Jason Gaddis at the Relationship School can help. Jason's team will pair you up with a skilled relationship coach, and within 48 hours, you'll be getting private one-on-one support on whatever you're going through relationally. And right now, for my listeners only, Jason is offering half off one month of relationship coaching. Head over to relationshipschool.com slash Laura to get the deal and watch your relationships improve. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Wow, are you all in for a treat. I have a genius guest today, Dr. Emily Schleckel. Dr. Emily is known as the foot doctor. She is a podiatrist, but has become much more than that. She is also a human movement specialist and global leader in barefoot science and rehabilitation. She looks at movement dysfunction and neuromuscular control during gait. So you know we have a lot in common and we cover everything from the genius foot design, how it affects your nervous system, your fascia, your movement, and how you can improve it. We also talk about the types of shoes she would recommend or not recommend and the products that she's developed, which are also so innovative and regenerative. So really enjoy our conversation and please write me and let me know what you think of it. Welcome, Emily. So happy to have you on today. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure. Well, I've looked over your site and I've learned about you from mutual friends, Doc Jen and Doc Dom. And there's so much to cover, but I first want to cover the the fact that you moved away from your original, I guess, profession. You're still in the profession, but you were doing surgery. Can you talk a little about your journey um, from like deciding to go into medicine to what you ended up doing and then how that got to got you to where you are now? Yes. So now today I consider myself a functional podiatrist and human movement specialist. My origin into movement, let's say, actually started with me being a gymnast. So I was a competitive gymnast for 13 years and then was in fitness. I've been in fitness for over 20 years. So this movement background, fitness background is very important to how I ultimately looked at medicine. When I was going through podiatry school, now today, the way that they teach podiatrists is very surgically driven. It is the moneymaker in medicine is to do surgery. So we were taught how to think like a surgeon. A patient comes in and all you see is surgery and surgical procedures. Uh, And it just didn't sit well with me to not offer other things because of my appreciation in movement and fitness. So I actually left traditional surgical training, put a pause, went back to school, got my master's in human movement, which really connected a lot of this appreciation to fascia, diaphragmatic breathing, emotion, autonomic nervous system, sensory, everything that we're going to speak about. So then when I went back to my surgical training, which I had to do, you literally have to be trained as a surgeon to get licensed. So I played the game, did what I needed to do, did some surgery when I first got out. I actually did surgery for five years and it is very lucrative. But again, I I was like, I want to go to sleep at night knowing that I'm actually recommending honestly what this patient could benefit from versus being biased by the dollar sign. So that's why I actually started shifting away from it. And then I left that type of medical 
care in 2017. Once you leave surgical training, you're pretty much not going back because the skills, I don't have the skills anymore with my hands, but my focus in functional medicine, functional movement, regenerative medicine has opened up a very unique and thankfully successful practice because there's so many patients that come to me and say, I want anything possible, but surgery. So I'm coming to you for that. And that's a majority of people actually don't want surgery. Exactly. Can you, what I'm assuming bunionectomy has got to be high up there, but is, is what, what is the most common surgery for the foot? It would be bunions, hammer toes Mm -hmm. would be the most common. Um, And other ones would be uh, a plantar fascial release. So someone not responding to plantar fasciitis treatments for months. If you're thinking like a surgeon, you'll say, oh, why don't I just cut it, release it? Then there's no problem anymore, right? Pays well, easy surgery, right? But that's where I now doing regenerative medicine would say, okay, no, let's actually look at PRP and these various growth factor injections, red light therapy, things like that to then repair the tear. Um, but yeah, majority of it was that primary, the bread and butter of surgery for foot is hammer toes and bunions. Yes. It's the money maker. Oh yeah. So, I mean, I think this is right around what everybody is going to deal with if they've been wearing shoes. Um, I talk yeah. about bunions all the time. We, we talk the same talk and I love on your, on your site, by the way, that you have a quote that I use a lot by Leonardo da Vinci. I'm just going to read it for everybody. The human foot is a masterpiece of engineering and a work of art. It is truly, um, it, it, it is, it's a masterpiece. It's really hard to tell people who haven't actually looked at a foot at all the joints, at all the bones, at all of the ligaments, the tendons, the nerves, the fascia, the construction of the arches. It's really hard to describe how incredible it is and that we balance on two of them um, and are bipedal and don't even think about it. We just take it for granted. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the arch of the foot and how it's not just one arch, but this convergence of multiple arches that um, create the arch? And and do you believe that anyone actually has a flat foot? (laughs) (laughs) Because everybody says, I have flat feet, and I'm like, I bet you probably don't. But you've been told that, and then you have this kind of, you know, identity with it, and that's going to be the blame for everything. Okay. So I'm going to kind of start to unpack that. And then if you need to pull more information, just let me know. Uh, So if the listeners think about what would be like a stereotypical foot, you could look down at your foot right now, right? So it's, it's what's called a plantigrade foot. The human foot is plantigrade, which means we have this tripod with several arches, three arches that allow us to ambulate the way that we do. And what is different from the human foot and like a primate's foot is that they don't have these same arches and the capacity to transfer energy for forward propulsion the same way that a human can. And I'm very fascinated in kind of the evolution and the uniqueness of a human bipedalism versus primate bipedalism, whether, whether it's evolutionary or you're just saying these are differences between primate and and human, but that arch big thing about it is that the medial and lateral arches, which are the longitudinal arches. And then we have a transverse arch that kind of runs underneath the metatarsals or the ball of the foot. And that's creating the, this plantigrade foot. Part of what the arches do, two things that I want to focus on is the first, you get a little bit of compression. So arch compression is actually measured in walking and running. And it's a way that you load potential energy from the ground. And that loading is then released as elastic energy when you take a step, right? We, we need to work with the ground and harness that energy in order to be efficient and to prevent injury and increase performance. So, so that's kind of that arch compression longitudinal arches. Now, the other big aspect of the arches that I think is a little less known or appreciated is that there's a position of our foot called a rigid lever, and that is a calf raise position. So if the listeners, if even if they're seated and they did a calf raise and they look at their foot, it's like the high heel position. 
That is called a rigid lever. And we are able to create that position because of our transverse arch. So that transverse arch of shaping and spreading pressure across the ball of the foot or the metatarsals is what creates that really powerful, rigid, locked structure to catapult off of. So it's a catapult mechanism that is really foundational to human movement. And I often will tell people when I teach that the whole purpose of walking is to get somewhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we have to have this catapult or this mechanism to get your center of mass forward. And that's deeply tied into this lever and the lever is tied into our arches. So your question about flat feet and arches and things like that is, I don't really use the term flat feet. It's really an element of pronation or no pronation. Pronation is kind of a rotational collapse of the lower extremity. Although I will say there is a pancake foot that I see. And this pancake foot has bones that are literally parallel to the ground, which is a different type of foot than a arch when someone is seated and then they stand up and they rotationally collapse into the inside of their foot. That's more this pronation, a pancake foot, which is rigid, flat pancake, whether they're weight bearing or not weight bearing is a very unique foot that I actually see in certain uh, populations. Um, I've been blessed to travel around the world teaching about feet. So I see a lot of different Um, cultural and historical extensions of foot types. And you can see more of this pancake rigid flat foot in more the Asian and the African areas versus European and then kind of the Western hemisphere. And, And what do you think the reason for that is? I think it, it ties again, this is, I, I, everyone has different beliefs in evolution Mm -hmm. and like kind of how man came to stand and the foot evolved is it took a while to evolve into this arched plantigrade foot where if you look at more like the Neanderthal foot, it is more pancake. It doesn't have the same arches that we've grown to appreciate. Now, does that change? um, Because I have read that like some of the African Kenyan runners, they have a longer Achilles tendon. And so they actually have that, their turnover, their foot, it's just, they, they hold on to a lot more energy. There's less energy loss. They're just returning it back into the body. And because of the length with that, maybe, maybe that was a kind of a, a biomechanical um, factor that the foot didn't have to be as Archie, because they had a, this long Achilles tendon, I'm kind of curious because the lever around yeah, the calcaneus. Yeah. Yeah. And that is something that is definitely highly researched is saying, okay, why are a lot of these people of African descent really fast? Like yeah. you look at in the Olympics and track and field, most of the people that are like very fast runners genetically have an African descent. And a lot of it does have to do with not just the length of the Achilles tendon, that's a huge part of it, but then the collagen and the elastic properties of their connective tissue as well, which is very unique. Thinking also like the collagen nature of their skin is also very different. I find that so fascinating of these different descents and how it holds into our connective tissue. Right. I would love to now launch into some connective tissue stuff because um, when, when you're explaining to clients that come in what fascia is and the relevance and importance of it and um, what, what happens when your foot is molded, for lack of a better word, in a shoe, what that, what that does to this connective tissue, can you explain a little bit about how you um, talk to your people about it? Sure. Because I'm sure your listeners have heard many people talk about fascia. Yeah. So I will try to hopefully give a slightly different perspective or some fun little fun facts or insights related to fascia. So I look at fascia as this connective tissue web that is an extension of your brain. 
So your fascia connective tissue, which surrounds every aspect of your human body, every fibril, bone, it just, everything is interconnected, has over 100 million sensory nerves. So you got 100 million sensory nerves. To me, that is fascinating that there's that many sensory seeking nerves that is then going to be used to maintain posture, to move, to connect to emotion. So it's a very, um, truly this access point into the brain. So I look at then the foot as very fascially rich because every part of the body is fascially rich, but it's very sensorily rich. And when we stand and shift into a lever and the foot moves, you pull and spread and stimulate this fascia in the foot that is sensory-based. So to me, the ability to spread, splay, trigger the foot is you triggering the nervous system to stabilize. So there's this stabilization mechanism or response to fascial um, tensioning or triggering. In, In shoes that are very restrictive, Um, tighter, don't support splay and spread. You don't ever get this sensory trigger to stabilization. That's where I see a lot of stress fractures, neuromas, plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendon issues as well. So really impact force-based injuries that I connect to delayed stabilization because of lack of sensory trigger to stabilize. Hmm. That's really a great um, description. And that made me think of two different kind of types of people. One who don't have enough of that sensorial feedback. And the other who, like I'm thinking of complex pain syndrome, which I'm, I'm sure you see as well. You know, complex pain is syndrome is like, it's labeled that because people don't really fully understand what is the trigger, although I have my own ideas based on having treated a lot of people. Um, I'm curious what you would have to say about that. So for anybody that's listening, these are people who have like burning, cold, all kinds of um, inappropriate nerve response. And it often is distal, meaning farthest away. So in the foot, in the hands, and it's really distressing. Um, I'm curious what your take is on that. And when you, when somebody comes in with that issue that they're like kind of overly, um, sensorily stimulated. I actually see quite a few of the CRPS or these complex patients. Um, and it's definitely one of the most frustrating conditions to try to treat very emotionally connected I, you always want to try to get them at the earliest, like the sooner you can get these patients. I know, you know, this, the more you can get things under control. If I have someone who's had it for years and they're just coming to me now, I'm really trying to just change their emotional relationship to this chronic condition, knowing that alterations in their emotional state and sympathetic stress responses are just going to flare it up and trigger it. So we try to focus on that mindfulness side of it. Um, I, I do sometimes try to use desensitization strategies with Naboso and with other stimulants to try to calm things down. I find that that gives much better success in the beginning though, Mm -hmm. again. Um, But just so the listeners really understand that this is an autonomic response. So it is not under control until you can consciously try to control it, meaning like breath and the stress level, but there's many subconscious triggers to it that the individual cannot anticipate and then they get kind of a flare up in the leg is purple or something like that. Exactly. And I think this is again, where the, um, for the most part, not everybody, but the modern medical model is, is kind of failing these people because you can't put them in a box like, well, let's take an MRI of your lumbar spine and see if it has anything to do when it's to me, so driven over and over. I see it driven by the nervous state, the, um, fight or flight, the dysregulation and you know, that's where I try and come in and, and, and help out as well. So can you speak a little bit about like the emotional, um, psychosomatic component 
of the foot, the fascia, and everything in between, how it's all interrel like if you have something in your foot, yes, it might be biomechanical, but indeed it could be also something else. Yeah. And as some of the listeners may be like, how is a podiatrist talking about this? <laughs> so where is the connection? But this is my practice is now very much chronic patients, chronic pain, chronic movement dysfunction, chronic movement disorders. And what I started to observe or appreciate in these individuals was as soon as you get something chronic or long lasting, there is this emotional relationship that every single individual has with their condition. And every patient would respond very differently to what I would give them based off of their emotional relationship to it, which is going back to some of that autonomic nervous system, sympathetic fight or flight response to it. So I started to kind of see this deeper complex side to treating a human being and past experiences, which got me further down the rabbit hole of interoception and helping people to one, know what that is. And can you tell the, everybody in, listening? So that it just, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So interoception is sounds like proprioception or exteroception, which is our perception of our body as it relates to the external world. Whereas interoception is our perception of our internal environment. A great example of an interoceptive sensation or response would be butterflies in the stomach or palpitations, things like that, that are really kind of autonomic responses, but we are perceiving it through sensations of different nerves and the gut, our stomach and our intestinal visceral aspect is a hundred times larger than the surface area of our skin, which is quite fascinating that the number, just the sheer comparative number of our internal environment versus our external environment. And people often overlook or don't even know it exists, but it's actually influencing so much more of their external movements and relationships than they realize. So there is a deep correlation between exteroception and interoception, and they influence each other. So in the foot, I see the foot, or the foot is an exteroceptive um, area of the body. There's tactile touch nerves that are mechanoceptive. So just touch, I don't wanna make it too complicated, but the touch nerves in the bottom of the feet have a influence on someone's perceived safety. I can feel the ground. I feel my feet. I feel my body. I'm connecting to my physical body in space. And that's very calming to then our interoceptive response. And autonomically, it can help someone stay grounded or calmer. Um, so I will use barefoot stimulation, the Naboso products, vibration, grounding outside, just kind of this awareness to our foundation because if someone is starting to get, let's say, emotionally excited, anxiety, PTSD, fight or flight, something like that, they're very, you know, Twitchy. on guard. Yeah. 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 But if they kind of reconnect, okay, I'm here in this room. When we're in a room seated standing, the base with the ground is our feet. So it is very anchoring, kind of like the analogy of like a tree and its roots and we're anchoring. You can really see how that can kind of correlate and cross. So I will use then sensory stimulation to ground and anchor and then teach professionals to use that and then use words and cueing and analogies to associate texture of the feet as an example to equate safety to the client's autonomic nervous system. Amazing. And how is, how do you find that is connected? So it almost sounds like people come to you with a foot quote unquote issue and there's many more, right? Like many things. It's not yeah. just the foot. Um, what do you see as the relationship between the feet and the pelvic floor? So many. Right. I was going to say, I'm leading you. I'm leading you. <laughs> yeah. you know, I know. Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah. So the way that we can go back to standing, walking, feet are the only contact point between the body of the ground. It's this uh, conduit of energy. It's how we load and unload. It's how we catapult forward. Right. So there's whole complex, super important aspect to human movement in the feet. Now, that aspect of posture and movement has to be connected to our center of gravity or our center of mass, right? Because that's how my relationship to the ground connects to my center of how I'm moving this object forward. Um, So that's really kind of where it starts is feet and core is foundation and center of mass relate. And then fascially, they are actually connected. Um, There's a deep front fascia line that runs from the tips of your toes, up your lower leg, into your pelvic floor and through your diaphragm, up to your tongue. So I will teach people how to create tension in that fascia line by pushing their toes down and lifting the pelvic floor. And then you can bring your tongue to your palate or you could exhale at the same time. But by going toes down, tongue up, you are essentially tensioning this internal fascial skeleton, which is really how we maintain posture. We don't maintain posture by your bones. It's the fascia that is stimulated by gravity that's pushing down and it lifts against it. I know you know all this. Yes. No, but I (laughs) love the way you're describing it. Yes. Yeah. So kind of that, that connection. And then even more so the feet and the core, there is what's called a muscle synergy. So these are kind of like synapses in the brain that if you activate one area, it will activate other areas in the brain. And this is through fMRI studies. And the F is showing the, the circulation to different areas of the brain. And they actually show it between the big toe and the posterior pelvic floor. So when you push your big toe down, there's this inherent muscle synergy to lift your posterior pelvic floor, which that's the part of that deep front line that actually connects to the feet. So I'll then teach people that as well, that as your toes go down, I want your levator ani to lift so that you build that uh, foot to core foundation to center stabilization. Uh, And then of course there's mechanical joints are moving and you're getting this joint coupling. So that's like four reasons or four ways. I love that because what I, I see a lot is, and I think unfortunately on things like social media, this has been kind of um, picked apart in segments and then people just like gravitate to like, don't do this, don't do this. So it's like, don't activate your pelvic floor. And I'm like, wait a second, don't teach people that because the issue is that if they have high tone, they are not stable, right? They haven't developed the fascial stability. So they're just trying to get it somewhere else. And often it's the position of the pelvis. You know, if they're anterior tilted, they push back into their knees. They're not in that wonderful tripod of the foot. It's just from down to up and up to down. And and then you start moving through space and it's not a stable, stable pelvis. Of course, it's always going to be stable, but it's not biomechanically stable. And then these things come into play that are kind of small parts to play to try and stabilize. And so I'm so glad you mentioned all this because it's just, it's frustrating to see people tell you to learn to relax. Yes, you should learn to relax your pelvic floor, but more importantly, learn why it's in this hypertonic state. And a lot of it is that, is that energetic alignment is not um, as efficient or optimal. And so you, you're gripping, you're gripping in areas that you shouldn't be gripping because you're trying to hold your center of mass stable. Would you agree with that? I do. I do. And I see a lot of pelvic floor overactivation or hanging on the gripping kind of what you're talking about. And then that presents as, you know, pudendal nerve entrapments or irritations, um, pain during sex, like a lot of stuff, or even women who are pregnant and trying to deliver and they don't know how to relax. So they tear in a very aggressive way because of them not being able to understand a relaxation and the ebb and flow. So I call it kind of like waves. I want people to find the relaxation, to find the contraction and to release and find really safety 
in the pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very emotionally vulnerable area of the body as well. Um, and when I teach pelvic floor releases and pelvic outlet stretches, I always teach, you know, the trainers and the therapists to know that if you're having someone do this, like a quadruped and they're shifting their hips back and trying to like open the pelvic outlet, me, the client or the patient, I have to feel safe. If I'm in a room and a commercial gym, <laughs> like I'm not going to like allow my pelvic outlet to stretch. Like I, I'm not going to do that. Right. So we have to kind of honor that and understand that. And then make sure that the individual feels safe to do that. And, you know, it is a very common uh, stress location that I see pelvic floor, calves, jaw, and traps. Like those are the four areas. And it was so funny. A lot of some of the therapists and I in New York City, we'd be like, a lot of the New Yorkers just have really tight pelvic floors. <laughs> New York. <laughs> They're trying to survive the jungle, right? Yeah. Right. Well, um, so for people who getting back to the big toe and that first metatarsal head and how important not only with the deep fascial line connection, but how important it is for that pushing us for it. Like we don't really have to even work that hard if that the mechanics are there, like the wind last mechanism you were starting, you spoke of. And um, when people start to develop uh, that, you know, hallux rigidus or the rigid toe, not yet the bunion, but starting to form, can you explain the early stages? People that have bunions probably know what happens, but what happens from that energetic perspective up the chain when you aren't able to distribute that weight? I think it's like 60% of your push-off is from that first metatarsal. Yeah, majority of our strength comes from hallux flexion, meaning going down into the ground. So we have to have toe flexor strength. And then the other part of it, or what's happening simultaneously is you're actually moving through the joint itself, right? So you're dorsiflexing the joint while the toe is plantar flexing into the ground, Mm -hmm. hopefully for the listeners, right? Now, in addition to the pelvic floor foot to core connection of the foot or the toe pushing down, how that activates things is that range of motion. And that range of motion of the big toe joint influences our hip extension, which influences our step, our step length. Um, Some people call it stride, but there's two steps in a stride. So the step length is obviously how far the swing leg is going to go forward. And we need to take long steps to then load the next leg or the next step right? So it becomes this winding and unwinding and winding and unwinding as I'm unwinding one, I'm winding the other. And it's this rotational, beautifully complex system within the body that requires a certain length of a step to optimize it. If you cannot take a long step, you are going to shorten your steps. You may lose hip extension you might not swing your arms as much, which means now your rib cage doesn't rotate. So you don't load the lats and the glutes and the obliques and the adductors on the opposite side. So we start to get muscles that shut off in a sense. They, they are not as activated. So I'll just say shut off. And then when they start to shut off now, let's say the glutes, cause you're not taking long steps and getting hip extension. Now the individual is saying, wait, why am I getting low back pain? Why am I getting SI joint pain? And it's because the glutes are not activating the way that they should or at the appropriate time. So this is where from a a podiatry perspective, let's say I could assess and quote unquote, treat someone with SI joint pain or back pain or knee pain, because I'm looking at it from the perspective of an, a gait assessment. And what are you doing 5,000 times a day that is contributing to this? And you might go to physical therapy and do very traditional clamshells and monster walks and things like that for the glutes. And they never turn on and you still have this. And your orthopedist is like, I don't know, right? It's the movement pattern that is feeding the beast and the problem 
could be just the big toe. It's incredible. And when you, when you finally show that to someone and then say, oh, it's because they're like, oh, I didn't even know that existed in my shoe. Like it's so far from what they thought was possible as a contributor to this larger movement pattern. Um, so that's, I, I see that a lot. You'll see that referenced a little bit on social media and in courses. So I feel like there's a, a greater appreciation now, but even in my profession, the way that podiatrists are taught, that would never be taught. Mm, yeah. So frustrating. It is frustrating. Uh, the limitations of, you know, not looking holistically and functionally, right? Like a functional medicine um, specialist is, again, looking at how one thing impacts the other in multiple ways, not just the biomechanics, but the the energy exchange, the efficiency, the neuromotor coordination, which you referenced, like when does the glute turn on? Maybe it's underperforming, but it's also turning on in a delayed way. It's like very multiple things. And it sometimes it comes down to the simplicity of your your foot isn't working well. You're rigid in your toe. You're not getting the good push up. So what are some ways that you have developed? I know you're uh, an inventor, which is incredible in, in addition to your list, but you've actually come up with some ways of helping people um, get some of this sensorial feedback, mobility. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired that and then and what you offer? Yeah, so uh, you are referencing Naboso, and Naboso is a product line that I developed four years ago. And we, what is that? I'm sorry, what is that? What is the like meaning behind that name? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) so Naboso is a Czech word that means barefoot. Uh, uh, Oh, okay. Are you Czech? I am not. Everyone has that. Okay, but you okay, but you like it. I like yeah, it. Yeah. I, I was in I was in Prague when I was coming up with the name for my company. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I was. And then uh I don't know if you remember Dr. Yanda, mm-hmm. who oh, yeah. was a Czech physiatrist. Yes. So this is kind of my homage to him as oh, well, is the Czech word because he he very much influenced my work in the beginning. Uh I also did learn it's a Polish word and I am Polish. So there you go. Okay. So sorry to interrupt. Naboso. All right. No worries. So Naboso is a sensory product line. We use texture as our sensory stimulant on all of our products to stimulate the nerves in the bottom of the feet and technically the palm of the hand. And the specificity of our texture is very important to getting the results that we do and the benefits and the science behind our products. So for anyone who is familiar with it, or you go to the website, naboso.com and you check it out, I know you got a mat, so you're familiar with the pyramids, is there's tiny little pyramids across the entire surface of all of the products. And the pyramid is creating a point that then when your nerve or the, the foot is touching the two points, it is essentially differentiating them. So it's called two-point discrimination. Best analogy to that is Braille. So the way your finger reads the Braille dots is the same nerve that we stimulate. So sensing the difference, the space between it to read Braille, we are like Braille for your feet. You need to have a certain point and a certain distance between those points. So our products from insoles, socks, mats, release tools, sticks, uh, we have other ones that we're working on. Everything has this textured stimulant to build foot awareness, foot strength. And then we also use them for foot recovery. So activation, strength, and recovery is what we say our products do for feet and hands. Incredible. So for anybody out there, uh, definitely look into these products. I cannot wait. I, mine arrived yesterday. So I'm really excited to try it. My husband's like, you need another yoga mat? I'm like, oh, but wait, it's not a yoga mat. <laughs> um, so what are some like some tips that people can do to just have healthier feet? What are some just easy, besides this product, what are some easy tech um, tips that you would offer? My three pillars of foot health is mobility, mobility recovery. You can kind of put, give them both names, strength and sensory stimulation. So those, the mobility or recovery is releasing and resetting the stress that your feet 
get put under every single day. It could be as simple as a five-minute foot release um, with the Naboso products. This is where our neural ball would come in. Uh, it's a ball that splits into two pieces, so it's two domes. And I tell people, just release your feet five minutes when you're brushing your teeth. Do it in the morning. Do it in the evening. It's giving your feet just a little bit of a reset of uh, the stress of the day and the plantar fascia and the muscles. So you're getting some kind of massage work into the foot. The strength is to be literally strengthen the small muscles of the feet, the intrinsics. But I don't want people to strengthen the foot in isolation. So not like doing a bunch of bicep curls. We want it to be integrated. So a strong foot is one that's connected to the core. So that is short foot is my go-to exercise. Short foot is pushing the toes down into the floor. We referenced earlier that every time you push your toes down, I want something to happen in the pelvic floor, a lift, and then you could exhale at the same time. Just a few repetitions saying hello, waking up that foot to core connection. That's another one that I want. Uh, the sensory, we went into that. If people happen to not have any of the Naboso products, it could be walking barefoot around your home. It could be walking outside to get some grounding as an added benefit to it. I just want people out of their shoes, experiencing different surfaces and textures and durometers and all of that through their feet every single day, at least 30 minutes. So those are at its core, the three things that people should be thinking about every day and easily, you should be able to do those three things. Really, when you get ready in the morning, you could be able to do all of those things. And that will then start this habit of healthy feet. Mm, I love that. And I know, um, like I read Born to Run, like many people did, and then many people went right out and got barefoot shoes. And I think it's, I would just love you to comment on you know, kind of ramping up your preparation because if you're don't have that stability, those intrinsic muscles, and then you go barefoot and then you start running and hiking, um, can you speak a little bit about how to best kind of volume up so that you are preparing your feet? Um, it sounds like 30 minutes a day, but if people did want to transition into like, oh, I want to go running barefoot or barefoot shoes, what, how, how to best like kind of do that? Yeah. So a lot of that barefoot running boom, Vibram five finger <laughs> trend, which I absolutely loved. A few things about that is yes, people did go, you know, from zero to a hundred extremely fast, traditional to a very flexible shoe that you could roll up. The other thing is that I think a lot of the association at that time and with those shoes were these shoes are for running, which means Suddenly, everyone is like, oh, I need to be a runner. Where it's like, no, 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 you could wear those when you just do squats at the gym. Like, you don't have to become full on marathon runner because of these shoes and you want to wear the shoes. So, this concept of barefoot running, I want the listeners to think of it could be barefoot training, or I actually call it being barefoot strong. So to be barefoot strong doesn't mean literally barefoot, but it could be, I wear minimal shoes because they support natural foot function, which is a characteristic of being barefoot strong. So as you transition into minimal shoes, more flexible shoes, shoes without cushion, shoes without structure, your foot and the foot muscles and the fascia of the foot needs to do what the cushion and the structure, the stiffness of the shoe did before. So I want people to be able to feel the feet. So part of it is training barefoot, strengthening the feet, releasing the feet, doing your foot to core. And then ultimately I do build um, barefoot balance, progressive programming that to me, the most effective way to train your foot to core stability to your glutes is doing single leg exercises. So I am a balance fanatic. Mm -hmm. I love to do barefoot balance training, body weight and body tension based. I don't think you really need lots of tools and gadgets to create a very optimal system. So just doing dynamic movement, side lunges, rotational lunges, reverse lunges, squats, step-ups, we're doing all these body weight movements, but you're building in the foot contraction with each of those. So if you were stepping up or doing a side lunge, 
as your foot hits the ground, I need you to engage it. And I need you to lift your pelvic floor and exhale all at the same time. So there's in this intent behind the foot strength or the foot aspect of that larger movement, if that is making sense. Yeah, it's, it's integrating. It's integrating. You know, it's like really pulling it all together, not just performing, uh, you know, a movement, but w- how you're doing it and what's involved in integrating the entire system. Yeah, so intentional, conscious, barefoot training is what I advocate. And I, a lot of people I feel will say, oh, I train without shoes, but there's actually no, they, they could be in shoes because there's actually no action, intentional action that is happening below the knee. And that's where I feel like there's this great opportunity for people to strengthen that foundation. Mm, I love that. Last question. I mean, I could talk to you all day, but I am curious because I do get this question a lot. Is there any uh, type of shoe that you really think warrants like a gold stamp for running? Because I mean, there's so many things out there. And when you when you read uh, anything about some of these products, like I won't name, but you know, the big brands, a lot of it is they're just doing, there's a lot of bells and whistles. And it's, um, I have seen that some of these... <laughs> really cause more damage over time. But I'm curious if you have any running shoes, if people are like, I got to run with this. I need a high cushion. Um, Can you just say why that might not be a good idea, but if there were anything besides barefoot that you would recommend? Yeah. So the three that I'm just going to briefly mention, and then I'll say why I'm recommending this specific brand, you're going to have zero drop. So zero to three millimeters are pretty much flat. They have no cushion. You can roll them. Vivo barefoot, zero shoes, um, lambs, new balance, minimus. Uh, those are probably the big ones. Mm-hmm. Then you have these transitional ones that are kind of that in between. They don't have a lot of structure. They have less cushion, less drop. So they're kind of like that catch all, which is going to be my recommendation for if I have to give one that's going to hit the most number of people, it's going to be a transitional shoe. The company that I feel does the transitional shoe the best is Ultra. So they have- <laughs> I love Ultra because they have the wide toe box. I use them for hiking yeah. and they're- my, yeah, nope. yeah. So they still have that, that wide natural toe box, not too much cushion, not too much drop. They just kind of check a lot of the boxes. Uh, another one on running is not bad. Uh, it's a little bit narrower, so it's not as natural foot shaped as ultra, but just to give two, even though you said one, sorry, two. And then on the uh, anti-barefoot shoe, other extreme is, you know, I'm going to mention it, Hoka, <laughs> which is the maximal shoe, lots of cushion, lots of disconnect from the ground. They have a stiffer shank running through them with a rocker. So they, that built-in rocker that is stiff helps to push people forward. So if you're thinking of this propulsive requirement that I had said with walking and running, Hoka is kind of trying to push in that direction. Now there are very selective times that I may recommend that I have to give one because you asked about it. Arthritis in the big toe. Okay. If someone is having limited range of motion in the big toe and they are like, I'm going to run anyway. Don't care what you say, Dr. (laughs) I need to do it. And the ultras and the vivos hurt my toe. So I'm going to use Hoka. That's one where I would say, okay, mechanically, I understand its benefit. And if you're going to run anyway, I need to give you tips to protect that joint as much as I can so that you don't compensate through your movement pattern. So that would be one Mm -hmm. that I would say, okay, okay. Put a Noboso insult in your Hoka. So you're offsetting all of that cushion. But for the majority of people, I really try to get them away from that much cushion and that much lift. It, it's just so much. Stack yes. is too high. It's so much left. And if people think of like, you know, even like you were, if you've ever put your phone on a charging pad, you know, it's like you put it right on there. Imagine like there's a barrier between your 
the phone and the charging pad, you, you, you're losing that current. I mean, it's being lost in that cushion and that's, that's all it is. It's not protecting your foot or, you know, cushioning your joints. It's actually, you're losing energy. And anytime there's a loss of energy, you are potentially um, causing problems somewhere else. Yeah. And a lot and a loss of perception. So mm, yes. the perception leads to the energy transfer. And if you can't feel the ground, you are kind of moving with like half the information. Mm-hmm. And I'm a believer in helping the nervous system win at all of its movements. The, the nervous system is based off of survival. So it is going to find a way to get you to move, right? It might not be efficient. You might get hurt eventually, but you will be able to run and move right? And that's, that's just an important part that I want the listeners to understand is that we will find a way. I say that all the time. We will execute the action and often it's the path of least resistance and with, with not the best, you know, balance of perception, muscles, firing, core integration, all there's so many things. So it is, I look at like the way that I practice and teach is an opportunity to re- we actually have a thing called the reset, reset these, these patterns that might not be working for us, or we could work, you know, better and brighter and safer. I love that. So tell us where people can find out more about you. I am on Instagram. My handle is dr. Emily DPM. My podiatry website is my name, which is dremilysplickle.com. I'm sure that will be in the show notes. Yes. Uh, I also tell people to just search Dr. Emily Foot. If you can't remember anything, <laughs> just Dr. Emily Foot. It literally will come up. I've tried it. <laughs> so it's, what is right that comes up for Naboso and all of our products. That is uh, Naboso on Instagram, N-A-B-O-S-O. And then our website is naboso.com. We have distribution all around the world. So regardless of where the listeners are, just enter naboso.com and it will direct you to the appropriate site. So you can That's order. incredible. Well, congratulations on all you've done. I always like it when people um, are pioneers and find a path that resonates to be true with your heart and your soul and your mission. And clearly you have done that. So thank you for your time and your wisdom. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And for everybody listening, as always, I'm pulling for you.